Well, good morning, and welcome to Severn. We're at, I believe it's week 12 now, of our series called Equipped. And this series um, is all about, we've just been looking at spiritual disciplines, which are the practices that... that, um, that men and women, that God has invited men and women uh, to incorporate into our lives um, so that we can grow into the people that he's called us to be, into spiritually healthy people. Uh, we've been talking about those disciplines uh, for the last 12 weeks now. And, and for the last uh, about eight of those weeks, I think it's been seven or eight of those weeks, we've kind of been in, in you could call it like a mini-series within the larger series as a whole, where we've been focusing on just one specific spiritual discipline that was way too big and all-encompassing to cover in, in one week, and that's the discipline of prayer. And so we've been talking about now uh, for, for about seven, eight weeks, how prayer can be used to process some of the most difficult conditions um, and complex emotions that you and I are going to experience in this life. And, and as you've heard me say, you know, each week in the intro to these teachings, that there's really no book in the Bible that's, that's better at showing us that. Uh, it's showing us how prayer can help us in that way. Um, there's no book in the Bible better than the book of Psalms in that regard, because when you read through the Psalms, you're not going to get, you know, I've heard it said that, that the Psalms is almost like God's, uh, counseling case book. It's not a textbook, it's a case book, meaning it's not full of a lot of kind of abstract, intangible theories and concepts. When you read through the book of Psalms, what you're reading through is actual cases of actual people praying actual prayers as they were dealing with the things that we all struggle with and, and none of us are naturally really great at, at handling. Um, and so for the last several weeks up here, we've talked about how to use prayer to process things like, you know, the feeling of helplessness. You know, what do you do when you can't do anything? Um, we, we've talked about how to use prayer to process doubt, uh, to process guilt and shame, to process um, anger and anxiety and sorrow. And, uh, and each week we've, we've looked at specific psalms that deal precisely with those kinds of feelings and emotions and how prayer can very specifically be aimed to dismantle the power of those things in our lives. Um, but today we're capping off this section of our series about prayer, and so we're going to do things a little bit different. And uh, today, this is actually a great week if, if you're joining us for the first time, because today we're going to look at a psalm that in so many ways just summarizes everything that we've talked about the last several weeks. And uh, rather than, than looking at a psalm that very narrowly focuses on just one specific feeling or thought or emotion or state of the heart, we're going to look at a very general psalm uh, that contains principles that will show you and I um, not only how to deal with all the feelings and emotions we've talked about the last several weeks, but it's a psalm that will give us principles that show us how to deal with every thought and every emotion we're bound to experience in this life. And I know that's a really bold promise to make, but that's, that's what I'm putting on the table today, that we're going to look at a psalm um, that will show us how to handle literally anything this life throws at us. So if that doesn't cause you to lean in, I got nothing for you. We're going to be in, in Psalm chapter, unless you hate handling life well, you should listen. That's <laughs> what, what I'm trying to say. So I'm in Psalm chapter 103. It's a, it's a little bit longer, um, but this one's a fun read. So I'm going to read all 22 verses on the front end. It says, my soul praise Yahweh and all that is within me praise his holy name. My soul praise the Lord. And do not forget all his benefits. He forgives all your sin. 
He heals all your diseases. He redeems your life from the pit. He crowns you with faithful love and compassion. He satisfies you with goodness. Your youth is renewed like the eagle. The Lord executes acts of righteousness and justice for all the oppressed. He revealed his way to Moses, his deeds to the people of Israel. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and rich in faithful love. He will not always accuse us or be angry forever. He has not dealt with us as our sins deserve or repaid us according to our offenses. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his faithful love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he knows what we are made of, remembering that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He blooms like a flower of the field. When the wind passes over it, it vanishes, and its place is no longer known. But from eternity to eternity, the Lord's faithful love is toward those who fear him, and his righteousness toward the grandchildren of those who keep his covenant, who remember to observe his precepts. The Lord has established his throne in heaven, and his kingdom rules over all. Praise the Lord, all his angels of great strength who do his word, obedient to his command. Praise the Lord, all his armies, his servants who do his will. Praise the Lord, all his works in all the places where he rules. My soul, praise Yahweh. This is God's word. Man, I feel like I could just end there. Um, I said on the front end that this is a psalm that's meant to teach us how to handle literally everything that life throws at us. And, and what it does, first and foremost, by implication, is this psalm shows you and I what the, what the most foundational issue of the human heart is that causes it to crumble under the situations and, and emotions that we experience in life. And uh, it says it right here on the front end. It's found in the first verses where David says, My soul praise Yahweh and forget not his benefits. So what you have here is this entire psalm is really just about one thing. It's David trying to forcefully get himself to remember what he knew he was so prone to forgetting. And so what David is, is, is saying is that the main thing that he needed to do, uh, and therefore the main thing that you and I need to do, the main way to handle literally anything that this life throws at us is very simply to remember. To remember. Now I just want to pause here um, and point something out. Because a lot of times when I put these teachings together, I try to think about what would I be thinking if I heard this teaching and I'm, I'm willing to bet that somebody listening to this right now just kind of sighed and quietly said, here I thought this was actually going to be a good teaching. Uh, because I realize that that sounds anticlimactic. You know, to, to stand up here on a stage and say that, that, you know, your most fundamental problem is that you forget. And the way to handle everything in your life is to remember, I, I'm not unaware of the fact that that sounds ridiculously... Um, oversimplistic. 
It's just a very reductionistic way to look at, at life. And so if that's what you're thinking, uh, first off, I just want to say I, I validate that, but I blame that on the English word remember. Because I want to tell you that the, the, the English word remember and, the, and, and, and even the English word for forget, they don't even scratch the surface at exactly how powerful the biblical concepts of forgetting and remembering are. And so what I'd like to do today is spend our time talking about exactly that, about what the Bible's really getting at when it calls us to remember something. And so based on Psalm 103, um, I, I really just want to ask four questions. And these are going to serve as basically the moves of today's teaching. I want to ask first and foremost, why do we need to remember? I want to ask, where do we need to remember? That's a weird sounding question. I want to ask, what do we need to remember and then lastly, we'll conclude by talking about exactly how we do that. So, so first and foremost, and this is going to be our, our first kind of main idea today, phrased as a question. Number one, uh, why do we need to remember? And to understand that, you have to understand what Scripture is really talking about uh, when it's talking about the concepts of remembering and forgetting. And let me just give you two examples. And, and, and before I, I, I get to them, I'll just offer you this that scripture is talking about far more than just count your blessings when it says remember. Uh, it's, it's talking about something so much deeper than just mentally recalling something. Um, for instance, in, in Isaiah chapter 51, God is speaking to the nation of Israel, and he's basically asking them the question, why are you so afraid of people? Uh, if, 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 you, if you read it, what God is, is getting at, he's asking people, why are you allowing the thoughts and opinions of mortal men, people who live and die just like you do, uh, to dictate your convictions and cause you to compromise what you know to be true? And then in Isaiah chapter 1, verse 13, God answers his own question, and here's what he says. But you have forgotten the Lord, your maker, who stretched out the heavens and laid the foundations of the earth. Now, when God says that, obviously, he's talking about something different than what we talk about or what we mean when we talk about forgetting something. When, when God says to Israel, you're afraid of people because you've forgotten me, he's talking about something more than the way that you forgot where you put your keys. Or in, in, in second, cha uh, second Peter chapter 1, along the same lines, Peter's speaking to Christians facing persecution, and he commands them to supplement, he says to make every effort to supplement your faith with things like goodness and knowledge, and godliness, and self-control, and brotherly affection, and, and love, and all these things. And then at the end of that, in verse 9, he makes a really stunning statement. He says, the person who lacks these things is blind and short-sighted, and here it is, and has forgotten the cleansing from his past sins. Now, you, you look at just those two verses, and you realize that when Scripture is calling us to remember something, it's talking about something much deeper than we normally think of when we think about remembering. Something a lot more, de something deeper than just the ability to mentally recall something. And, and actually, God even talks about forgetting and remembering personally. There's a number of places in Scripture, you're probably familiar with this, where God makes the promise, he says, I will remember your sins no more. And pardon me for stating the obvious, but, but obviously when God is, is saying he's, he'll remember your sins no more, he's not saying that he lacks the ability to mentally recall the things that you've done wrong. When God says, I will remember your sins no more, what he's saying is, I will never again interact with you on the basis of your sin. He's saying that the operative foundation of your relationship with him will never again be 
your failure to, to keep his law. That's what that promise is. And so I, I've said kind of everything I've said up to this point to point out that in the Bible, when, when, when the Bible calls us to remember something, to remember something is to internalize something so deeply that it revolutionizes who you are. And that's kind of the foundational understanding to, to you, need a, you need to get that to understand everything else we talk about today. So let me just say that one more time. That when scripture talks about remembering something, to remember something is to internalize something so deeply that it revolutionizes who you are. And biblically speaking, one of the main problems that you and I have is that the human heart has this really annoying tendency to remember what it should be forgetting and forget what it should be remembering. What I mean by that is that our hearts have this, on autopilot, what the human heart does is it has a tendency to to bring in and be shaped by that which it should be leaving out, while at the same time it has a tendency to naturally leave out that which it should be bringing in and being shaped by. And that might kind of sound, you know, intangible, but I think if you get introspective in your own life and in really to any degree, you'll find that that your own life bears this out. For instance, is it not interesting? Have Have you not found it interesting that none of us have any trouble recalling some of the most damaging things that have been said and done to us? Um, I, I guarantee you, everybody listening to this right now can vividly recall something that happened to you, even as a child, that m- maybe you would rather forget if you had the option to simply choose to forget it. You know, I was, I was talking to a buddy of mine just this week who was telling me, this, this completely proves the point, he was telling me that his first fully formed memory was when he was a three-year-old child and his pl- parents were splitting up. He remembers being in the car with one of his parents, driving away from the other one, having really, really not a great understanding of what was going on, but of, of uh, all the, 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 the experiences that could have created the very first functional memory that he has. That's the memory. And I don't know how many times over the last eight years I've met with people who, uh, you know, have talked about that very thing, experiences that they've had as a child. And here they are even decades later, and they can't even talk about experiences that they had without all this pain and all these emotions and all these tears coming to the surface. And the reason for that, according to the Bible, is that their heart has been shaped by that, because that's that's what the human heart so naturally does. And they, their heart remembers that. It's internalized these things that really they would rather leave out. We would all rather leave out. And, and the opposite of that is also true, that our hearts so effortlessly leave out what we wish we could internalize and hold on to and be shaped by. That's why in Philippians chapter, chapter 4, Paul, uh, writing from a jail cell to a local church you know, full of people just like us, telling them how they can have joy despite circumstances. In Philippians chapter 4, Paul says, finally, brothers... He says, whatever is is true and whatever is honorable and whatever is just and whatever is pure and whatever is lovely and whatever is commendable, he commands followers of Jesus, dwell on those things. And the reason the word of God has to tell us to dwell on those things is because our hearts so naturally let go of those things. And, And so my point here is just what I've already said, that the human heart so naturally lets go of what it should be holding on to and holds on to what it should be letting go of. And I don't have to tell you, it's devastating to our lives. 
And so the answer to our first question, why do we need to remember? The answer to that according to Scripture is because what we remember in a very real sense dictates the course of our lives. What you remember is what you internalize as the foundation of your identity, the foundation of your meaning in life and your purpose and your hope. It's the foundation of who you are. That's what's at stake here. And so the, the second question that I want to ask of Psalm 103 is going to be our second idea today. We talked about why you need to remember, but number two, where do we need to remember? The question that I'm getting at here is, is where does this psalm say the problem is located and where is it that we need to, to focus our efforts on? And the answer is found right here in the first verse. Psalm 103.1 says, My soul praise Yahweh and all that is within me praise his holy name. Now, let me ask what probably sounds like a strange question. Who is this psalm actually addressed to? Who's David actually talking to here? Because he's not talking to God. And on the other hand, he's not talking to other people. Who he's talking to, or I should say what he's talking to in these first verses, and really throughout this entire psalm, is his own soul. So what David is doing in Psalm 103 is coming to terms with something that anybody who wants to grow spiritually has to eventually come to terms with. He's coming to terms with the reality that in his innermost being, he is still dealing with unbelief to various degrees. What David is basically saying all throughout this psalm is despite what I cognitively know to be true, that truth has not been worked deeply enough into my innermost being to actually change how I live. And so, so what this means, what Psalm 103 shows us is that it's not enough. Your faith must have an intellectual aspect to it, but it has to have more than just an intellectual aspect to it. It's not enough to simply say, I believe that. It's not enough to simply say, you know, read a couple Bible verses and I find that interesting and I, you know, I, I give mental assent to that or I sign a statement of faith. What you and I have to do is exactly what David's modeling for us here, which is we have to pray the truth into our own hearts until it becomes so real to us that it actually changes the way that we live, which that that whole process, that whole act is something that the Bible refers to as meditation. Now, meditation is is a term that in a lot of ways I feel like has been hijacked uh, in a lot of different circles. It means different things to different people depending on what belief system it's, it's mentioned in the context of. And so let me just for a, a moment here explain what the Bible's talking about when it talks about meditation. Um, I've been pastoring for a little over eight and a half years now. And, and one of the most, uh, I'll say one of the most interesting aspects of this line of work, one of the most rewarding aspects of this line of work is that people have a tendency to open up to a pastor in ways that, um, you know, they don't open up to a lot of people. And so over the last eight and a half years, I've had the opportunity to meet with people in a one-on-one setting and, and just get a behind-the-scenes look at what you know, other people are thinking and the questions that they're asking and the way they've been affected by the, you know, the experiences that they've had. And, and whenever I've met with somebody on an ongoing basis, um, you know this if you have ever met with me for any length of time, I usually make a, a habit of, of asking uh, the person that I'm meeting with a deceptively simple-sounding question. And I'm going to ask all of you that question today, so congratulations. This just became a group therapy session, all right? Here's the question. How do you view God? And what I always ask for is five answers to that question, and I write them down as I hear them, and if you can, please make it one-word answers. not looking for five paragraphs here, okay? 
because it, it always has to fit on a post-it note. Before I continue, can I ask you to just for a moment think about how you would answer that question? How do you view God? Um, you may find this humorous, but I'll tell you that over the last eight and a half years as I've gone through that exercise with people, what I have found is that almost every single person that I've asked that question to does the same thing. They lie to me. <laughs> and what they tell me is how God should be viewed instead of how they actually view him. And so here's what I normally hear from people. I'll hear that God is, is kind and compassionate, merciful, forgiving. He's a loving father. He's a shepherd. He's you know, powerful and wise and just and all these things. And the thing is, those are right answers. Those are theologically correct answers. That is exactly how God has revealed himself in his word. But meanwhile, the person that, that I asked that question to has been you know, forthcoming about the fact that they are completely dominated by fear of their future. Uh, or they're choked by bitterness at the things that other people have done. Or they're choked by guilt and shame at the things they themselves have done. Or their life is just generally marked by you know, anger or despondency or hopelessness or whatever it is. And pardon me for pointing out that those two things cannot go hand in hand. What I mean by that is you can't say, I can't say I view God as an all-powerful loving father and then in my next breath say that I'm so dominated by fear that I can't even think about tomorrow. Because if you actually viewed God as an all-powerful, loving Father that, according to Romans, is going to cause all the events in your life to work together ultimately for your good, then you would be released from that fear. Those are incompatible truths about you. You know, and, and, and kind of similarly, you, you can't say, I view God as a kind, merciful, forgiving, compassionate Father but at the same time say I'm completely tormented by guilt and shame over the things that I've done or failed to do. Because again, if you really did view him that way, then you would be released from the hold that, that guilt and shame has on your life. And so one of the purposes of that exercise is to put people onto the reality that it's entirely possible to know something cognitively with your head without having that sink deeply enough into your heart to actually change the way that you live. And, and it usually takes two, sometimes three times of that going through that exercise to find out what their actual view of God is. Uh, and that's, you know, when the real work begins. That's a sermon for another time. We're not getting that deep today. But my, my point is the purpose of that, um, that exercise is, is to really put people onto that idea that it's entirely possible to know something without really knowing it. To know it without really being changed by it, without really being shaped and molded by it. And we, we all are to one degree or another. But I say all that to say that what David is doing right here in Psalm 103, uh, th this thing that we call meditation. Meditation is the primary practice by which we close the gap between what we know with our head and what we've internalized with our heart. Meditation is the practice God has given us uh, to bring the truth from something that we simply understand to something that we actually stand under. And none of us do that enough. I mean, myself included, I don't think there's a single person alive that, that is, is burning enough calories in the discipline of meditation. And the reason for that, I think chiefly speaking, is because it's difficult. It's just not an easy thing to do. To, to, to get skilled at the discipline of meditation requires you and I to be able to do two things. You see it all throughout the Psalms. You see it specifically in, in, in this Psalm. If you and I want to get skilled at, at the discipline of meditation, then we have to, number one, be able to listen to our hearts to the point that we figure out what's going on with them. And then number two, we need to actually be able to argue with our hearts so that we can actually drive the truth into them. 
And I actually heard somebody say, this made a lot of sense to me, that, that depression, and I'm talking about the non-biological kind, I mean, the, I mean the, uh, the normal despondency that human beings experience you know, at various times and various degrees throughout the course of their lives, that kind of depression is the product either of listening to your heart without ever speaking to it or speaking to it without having first listened to it. And so to, really to get good at meditation requires you and I to, to be essentially to think like our own heart's counselor, to figure out what's going wrong with our hearts but then also to learn how to, to heal our own hearts with the truth. And a perfect example of this is actually, I mean, not only is it here in Psalm 103, but Psalm 42, verse 5, is probably one of the best places in Scripture to see what this looks like, where it's David writing again, and he says, you may have heard this before, he says, why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation. And all David is doing there is getting brutally honest with what's actually going on in his own heart. That, that he is cast down. That his heart is in turmoil. That he's, he's failing to live in light of the reality of who God is and experience the joy that his soul should be experiencing. But then right alongside of that, he's forcefully arguing with his heart in order to heal it with the truth. And so when you ask the question, where do we need to remember? The answer is not only with our minds, but also with our hearts. And so we've talked about why we need to remember. We've talked about where we need to remember. But the third question that I want to uh, ask and answer today, this is actually going to be our last main idea today, and it's probably the most important one, is what do we actually need to remember? And the answer is found in the second verse of this psalm. It says, My soul, praise the Lord, and do not forget all his benefits. What David is, is, is trying to drive into his heart all through this psalm, he's just trying to remember the redemptive acts of God throughout not only his life, but the life of, of his, his people, the nation of Israel. Now, for, for Christians living on this side of Calvary, what this means, what Psalm 103 verse 2 is showing us, is that the primary thing that we need in this life is to drive the gospel, which is the, it is the story of what God has done for us. It is the ultimate benefits that God has made available to us. Our primary need in this life is to drive the gospel into the center of our lives. Because the, the issue underneath every other issue that we have is very simply that we've forgotten that. And so, so when you ask the question, okay, if, if we need to drive the gospel into our lives, what exactly is the gospel? And the word, as I'm sure you've heard before, the word gospel simply means good news. And this entire psalm is, is just elaborating on what this good news is. You, you, you find it most explicitly in verses 10 to 12. David said that God has not dealt with us as our sins deserve or repaid us according to our offenses. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his faithful love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Now, I'm willing to bet that you've heard that metaphor before. One of the most famous metaphors in the Bible, this idea of as far as the east is from the west. I just want to think about that for a moment. You, know, you can walk outside anywhere on this planet and you can look to your east and you can look to your west. And what you'll find is, is two horizons that are infinitely separated from, from one another that can never come together. 
And, and, and one of the things that's so telling about this metaphor that David, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is inclined to use here is that you can walk toward either horizon for any length of time. You can cover any length of distance. You can pick your head up again and look around and you'll find that your horizons are still exactly as far away from you and they're still infinitely separated and cannot be brought together. And so what David is getting across here, what this psalm is getting across here is that when God has removed your transgressions from you, When God has removed your sins as far as the east is from the west, the hope that you have is that your sins can never be brought near to you again. They can never be attached to you again. Meaning that the moment God takes them away by grace through faith in the name of Jesus, your sins in that moment will never ever have the power to define you ever again. They'll never have the power to separate you from God ever again. They will never have the power to dictate your destiny ever again. They have been removed such that they can never even approach you. That's incredible news. But I want to say something that I might surprise you to hear a pastor say, that that idea in and of itself is not enough to heal our hearts. Because that idea in and of itself is too abstract. And you know this from your own life's experience, I'm willing to bet. That that you and I, we 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 can close our eyes and we can plug our ears and we can say as many times as we need to, God loves me, God forgives me, whatever it is. But that's not going to help us deal with all the things that we've talked about the last several weeks of this series. That's not going to help you in and of itself deal with with your own helplessness. It's not going to help you deal with doubt. It's not going to help you deal with guilt and shame. It's not going to help you deal with anger or anxiety or sorrow or the litany of things that your heart is bound to experience in this side of eternity. What you and I need is something more than just this abstract idea that God loves me or God forgives me. What you and I need is the true story of how God demonstrated that love and accomplished that forgiveness for you and I. What we need is to see and know exactly how far God was willing to go and the price that he himself was willing to pay to demonstrate that love and accomplish that forgiveness, which is exactly what the story of the gospel is. And this psalm points to it in, in a subtle but a really powerful way. Here's what I mean. If, if you turn to verse 8, verse 8 of this psalm starts exactly the way uh, that God's speech to Moses on Mount Sinai in Exodus chapter 34 begins. It's the same exact wording. Psalm 103.8 says, The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and rich in faithful love. That is exactly how God describes himself on Mount Sinai to Moses in Exodus chapter 34. David knew that as somebody that had lived his whole life hearing the Old Testament. And all the people alive in David's day that would have read this psalm would have immediately had their attention drawn to that exchange between God and Moses. And if you turn over to Exodus chapter 34, you'll know that right after God says this about himself, right after God declares himself to be compassionate and gracious and slow to anger and rich in faithful love, immediately after that, God speaking to Moses says that he will not leave the guilty unpunished. That's a sobering thing to think about. That's God saying, I am compassionate, I am gracious, I am slow to anger, I am rich in faithful love, but I will ensure that no injustice finally remains. I will ensure, God says, that everyone eventually will get what they deserve. And yet, here in in, in, uh, Psalm 103, it appears to be saying the exact opposite of this, because right after verse 8, 
where David says the same thing that God said about himself in Exodus 34. David in this psalm chases that by saying that God will not always accuse us or be angry forever. He has not dealt with us as our sins deserve or repaid us according to our offenses. And so if you, here's my point, if you read this back in David's day and age, the very first question that would be hot on your mind is, is well, wait a minute, that sounds like the opposite of what is said about God in Exodus 34. So how do you reconcile these two ideas about God? And the answer is found in the person and work of Jesus Christ. What you're seeing on the cross is how these two ideas of God can perfectly come together without any compromise whatsoever. You're seeing how both the justice of God and the love of God can both be fulfilled. Because what Jesus did in coming to the cross was take our sins on himself so that God could destroy our sin without destroying us. So, so here's, what, here's what scripture says in, in, in light of, of uh, the context of a teaching like this. And Romans 1 really bears this out, that every single human heart has this, has this natural desire, this natural tendency to be its own master, to be its own authority. Even though the truth about God can be known by, there's at least a part of us that knows that he's there, that there's something bigger than us to whom we owe everything. But scripture says that every single one of us has made a deliberate attempt to forget God, to try to get out from under his authority and live as though he does not exist, or at least that he doesn't matter. And and traditional religious people do this in a certain way. More modern secular people do this in a certain way. Traditional religious people have a tendency to try to get out from under God's authority by actually living according to the rules, believing that by doing so they can save themselves and have no need of God, which is actually a very subtle form of rebellion against him. More modern secular people try to get out from God's authority by living however they want, believing that they can satisfy themselves apart from God, which is their way of getting out from under God's authority. And the irony is that as much as those two groups of people have always looked down on one another, Scripture says they're really just two sides of the same coin. And they're both doing exactly what they're doing for the same fundamental reason. It's just happening to manifest itself differently. Every single human heart deliberately chooses to suppress the truth about who God is and and how much we owe him. And so we try to get out from under his authority and live as though he doesn't exist. All of us have done that in one way, shape, or form. And so here's here's the question. What is the fair penalty for that decision? If if you... If you made a conscious, sustained, deliberate effort to forget somebody who has only ever demonstrated love for you, somebody that that it could be said you owe your very existence to, if you forgot about them, then the most fair thing for them to do is exactly what you've done to them, for them to simply forget you, for them to simply pretend that you don't exist, to treat you with the insignificance that you've treated them with. But but let me ask the question here. Let Let me press this. What would it be like? What would it be like to be forgotten by God? I know a lot of us have felt like that at various times in our lives. Maybe some of us feel like that this morning. But what would it be like, ask yourself, to actually be forgotten by God? To actually be forgotten by the the one being, the only being whose opinion ultimately matters. The, The being who is, according to Scripture, the source of significance in the universe. What would it be like to be forgotten by him? to be treated like you don't matter by him, to be treated as utterly insignificant by him. I remember I was 19 years old working at Hollister in the Marley Station Mall, which takes a little bit of security to to confess, now it's out there, okay? 19 years old, 
And I stepped out uh, for a smoke break. Camel Light was my brand. Stepped out for a smoke break with my coworker um, in front of the, the Marley Station Mall. So there I was making good decisions in front of Marley Mall. And out walked a, uh, a young lady that I did not know, my coworker did not know, but she was so upset you know, she was wearing it on her face. It was just very obvious that this girl was, was going through something really difficult. And my extremely extroverted coworker turns to her and asked her what was wrong. And I still remember exactly what she said to this day. I'm 34 years old now. This is 15 years ago. And I remember exactly what she said because she broke down in tears as soon as she said the words out loud. She said, everybody forgot about me. You can hear that story and and you can say, you know, she's just being dramatic. She's just being needy. Scripture would say, no, she's not. She's being honest. Because Scripture says that you and I are relational creatures designed in the image of a relational God. And what that means is that one of the most devastating things for the human heart to experience is to be treated like it doesn't matter. To be treated as insignificant. To be forgotten about. That's why when you get cut off in traffic... Or when, you, when somebody cuts in front of you in line, even if it's a stranger, when somebody that you have no relational connection to, when they treat you like you don't matter, when they, when they just overlook you or forget about you, it angers you. But when you get treated that way by, by your family, when you get treated that way by your closest friends, by people who are the most important to you, it doesn't just anger you, it devastates you, it cripples you. You'd have to be a sociopath to not be wounded by that. And so let me return to the, to, the, to the question I asked on the front end. What would it then be like if that's how painful it is to be forgotten by important people in our lives? What would it be like to be forgotten by the most important being in the universe, the source of all significance? That would be a kind of devastation that we can't articulate. That would be a kind of horror, a kind of, I don't even have the word for it, that we can't even begin to wrap our minds around. And yet... Scripture says that's precisely what Jesus went through on the cross for you and for me. On the cross, under the weight of our sin, Jesus called out. And Scripture says he was abandoned, he was forsaken, he was forgotten in a sense by God. And so here's the, I've heard it called the scandalous grace of the gospel. Here's what it is at its core. That even though you and I have utterly forgotten about God, even though we have deliberately suppressed the truth about God, even though you and I have failed to give God the glory, which simply means the weight that he deserves in our lives, even though every single one of us has, has lived as though he doesn't exist, or at least he doesn't matter if he does exist, Jesus Christ came and he stepped in our place to bear the penalty of that sin on our behalf. He knew what it was like. He experienced what it was like to be forgotten by the God who could have rightly forgotten about us. And now by grace, through faith in the name of Jesus, we can be remembered forever. And actually, there's a nod to this in this psalm. Because of what Jesus Christ has done for us, you and I can actually claim the promise found here in verse 17. But from eternity to eternity, the Lord's faithful love is toward those who fear him. So, so here it is. To sum everything up, this is, this is the, the promise of the gospel that we have because of Jesus. That in Jesus, by grace through faith in his name, God will remember your sins no more but he will remember you forever. And from eternity to eternity, his faithful love will be poured out on you. Can you imagine? 
It's, it's seeing that story. It's making that story that we call the gospel. It's making that the foundation of your life. It's making that the lens through which you interpret everything you experience in this life. That is the key to handling absolutely everything that this life hands you. It's about remembering the fact that in Jesus you will never be forgotten. Remembering that God will remember you. Internalizing this idea that God would never go through everything that he went through for you just to forget about you. Because Jesus Christ was forgotten on your behalf so you could be remembered forever. Let me call the worship team up and and, and we're going to close with this. I said I wanted to talk about... why we need to remember, then where we need to remember, then what we need to remember, and lastly, how we actually do this. And so the, the, the only question that remains is how do you actually drive this into your life? And the, the answer is to do exactly what David's doing for himself in Psalm 103. You just lay out the gospel and its implications and you drive them into your heart. You remind them and, and, until they heal you. And so I just want to close by doing that for all of us. And I'm willing to bet that there's something in this psalm that, that's, that's for everybody here personally. <clears throat> Psalm 103.3 says, He forgives all your sin. Can I just ask you, are, are you here today struggling with guilt and shame over the things that you've done or failed to do? The answer is to remember this aspect of the gospel, that because of Jesus, you have a God who forgives all your sin. It says, He heals all your diseases. Can I ask you, do you feel trapped in the body that you have? Entrapped by the problems that that body has and the limitations that that body has. Let me just remind you that according to scripture, the body that you now inherit is nothing more than a rental. And by grace through faith in the name of Jesus, you will inherit a resurrected body that will never, ever experience the corrupting power of sin ever again. David wrote, he redeems your life from the pit. Can I ask you, are you afraid of your own mortality? Are you afraid of the end of your life? There's your hope right there. Jesus entered the pit to redeem you from it. Scripture says he crowns you with faithful love and compassion. Do you feel dishonored? Are you upset with the, with the criticism, maybe the unfair criticism that you've received? There's the honor that you're looking for. God himself crowns you with faithful love and compassion. It says he satisfies you with goodness. Is there somebody here today who's found themselves totally unsatisfied with this life? You've pursued things. You thought they were going to do it for you. You're just as empty-handed as you were before you laid hands on it. Scripture says your heart was designed to be dissatisfied with this world. And that the satisfaction that you're looking for can be found in the goodness of the God who made you. And lastly, it says your youth is renewed like the eagle. I think this is the one for me. Maybe this is the one for you. Anybody here exhausted today? I think after this last year, uh, there's enough exhaustion to go around. I think we are the most overworked, overextended culture in history, and we have no idea exactly how badly we need rest. And if that resonates with anybody here today, the answer according to Scripture is go to the cross and see Jesus Christ, the Son of God, accomplishing the most exhausting work in the universe on your behalf, which is the work of your salvation. And stay there and sit there until it is finished, spoken over your life. And you'll find the rest that your soul needs in Jesus. As in Psalm 103, the, the point of Psalm 103, and it's, it's the point of this, this teaching, is that the problems that our hearts experience are really just indicators that somewhere along the way we've forgotten an aspect of the gospel that we need to remember. 
And, but even more than that, the point of, of Psalm 103, and it's the point of the entire book of Psalms, no matter what situation you find yourself in in this life, no matter what feelings and emotions you find rolling around in your heart, healing can be yours as you learn to drive the gospel into the center of your being through the discipline of prayer. That's how important this is. And after talking the last eight weeks, all I can, I, I'll just conclude by this. May we become a people of prayer because it would change our lives. Amen. That's it. That's all. Let me pray for us. Father God, I want to thank you for the gift that, that prayer is. And uh, I don't know of anybody who can't confess, who doesn't need to confess for granted, God. We so often, we live like functional atheists, pretending like we don't need you, forgetting how dependent we are on you. When it's only in your presence that we find the strength that we need and the hope that we need and the life that we need. Father, because as much as going to find it in this world. God, would you, would you simply make us a people of prayer? Make us a people who are so driven by the conviction to face our lives on our own. Would you drive us into your throne room in prayer where we would find life and life abundantly by grace through faith. In the name of Jesus, we ask these things. Amen.